Chapter 11.4 of the 9-11 Commission Report This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett The 9-11 Commission Report, Chapter 11.4 Management Operational Management Earlier in this report, we detailed various missed opportunities to thwart the 9-11 plot. Information was not shared, sometimes inadvertently or because of legal misunderstandings. Analysis was not pooled. Effective operations were not launched. Often the handoffs of information were lost across the divide separating the foreign and domestic agencies of the government. However the specific problems are labeled, we believe they are symptoms of the government's broader inability to adapt how it manages problems to the new challenges of the 21st century. The agencies are like a set of specialists in a hospital, each ordering tests, looking for symptoms, and prescribing medications. What is missing is the attending physician who makes sure they work as a team. One missing element was effective management of transnational operations. Action officers should have drawn on all available knowledge in the government. This management should have ensured that information was shared and duties were clearly assigned across agencies and across the foreign domestic divide. Consider, for example, the case of Midar, Hazmi, and their January 2000 trip to Kuala Lumpur, detailed in Chapter 6. In late 1999, the National Security Agency, NSA, analyzed communications associated with a man named Khalid, a man named Nawaf, and a man named Salim. Working-level officials in the intelligence community knew little more than this, but they correctly concluded that Nawaf and Khalid might be part of an operational cadre and that something nefarious might be afoot. The NSA did not think its job was to research these identities. It saw itself as an agency to support intelligence consumers, such as CIA. The NSA tried to respond energetically to any request made, but it waited to be asked. If NSA had been asked to try to identify these people, the agency would have started by checking its own database of earlier information from these same sources. Some of this information had been reported, some had not, but it was all readily accessible in the database. NSA's analysts would promptly have discovered who Nawaf was, that his full name might be Nawaf al-Hazmi, and that he was an old friend of Khalid. With this information and more that was available, managers could have more effectively tracked the movement of these operatives in Southeast Asia. With the name Nawaf al-Hazmi, a manager could then have asked the State Department also to check that name. State would promptly have found its own record on Nawaf al-Hazmi, showing that he too had been issued a visa to visit the United States. Officials would have learned that the visa had been issued at the same place, Jeddah, and on almost the same day as the one given to Khalid al-Midar. When the travelers left Kuala Lumpur for Bangkok, local officials were able to identify one of the travelers as Khalid al-Midar. After the flight left, they learned that one of his companions had the name Al-Hazmi, but the officials did not know what that name meant. The information arrived at Bangkok too late to track these travelers as they came in. Had the authorities there already been keeping an eye out for Khalid Al-Madar as part of a general regional or worldwide alert, they might have tracked him coming in. 
Had they been alerted to look for a possible companion named Nawaf al-Hazmi, they might have noticed him, too. Instead, they were notified only after Kuala Lumpur sounded the alarm. By that time, the travelers had already disappeared into the streets of Bangkok. On January 12th, the head of the CIA's al-Qaeda unit told his bosses that surveillance in Kuala Lumpur was continuing. He may not have known that, in fact, Midar and his companions had dispersed and the tracking was falling apart. U.S. officials in Bangkok regretfully reported the bad news on January 13th. The names they had were put on a watch list in Bangkok so that Thai authorities might notice if the men left the country. On January 14th, the head of the CIA's al-Qaeda unit again updated his bosses, telling them that officials were continuing to track the suspicious individuals who had now dispersed to various countries. Unfortunately, there is no evidence of any tracking efforts actually being undertaken by anyone after the Arabs disappeared into Bangkok. No other effort was made to create other opportunities to spot these Arab travelers in case the screen in Bangkok failed. Just from the evidence in Midar's passport, one of the logical possible destinations and interdiction points would have been the United States. Yet no one alerted the INS or the FBI to look for these individuals. They arrived unnoticed in Los Angeles on January 15th. In early March 2000, Bangkok reported that Nawaf al-Hazmi, now identified for the first time with his full name, had departed on January 15th on a United Airlines flight to Los Angeles. Since the CIA did not appreciate the significance of that name or notice the cable, we have found no evidence that this information was sent to the FBI. Even if watchlisting had prevented or at least alerted U.S. officials to the entry of Hazmi and Madar, we do not think it is likely that watchlisting by itself have prevented the 9-11 attacks. Al-Qaeda adapted to the failure of some of its operatives to gain entry into the United States. None of these future hijackers was a pilot. Alternatively, had they been permitted entry and surveilled, some larger results might have been possible had the FBI been patient. These are difficult what-ifs. The intelligence community might have judged that the risks of conducting such a prolonged intelligence operation were too high. Potential terrorists might have been lost track of, for example. The pre-9-11 FBI might not have been judged capable of conducting such an operation but surely the intelligence community would have preferred to have the chance to make these choices. From the details of this case, or from the other opportunities we catalog in the text box, one can see how hard it is for the intelligence community to assemble enough of the puzzle pieces gathered by different agencies to make some sense of them and then develop a fully informed joint plan. Accomplishing all this is especially difficult in a transnational case. We sympathize with the working-level officers, drowning in information and trying to decide what is important or what needs to be done when no particular action has been requested of them. Operational Opportunities 1. January 2000. The CIA does not watch list Khalid al-Madar or notify the FBI when it learned Madar possessed a valid U.S. visa. 2. January 2000. The CIA does not develop a transnational plan for tracking Midar and his associates so that they could be followed to Bangkok and onward, including the United States. 3. March 2000. The CIA does not watch list Nawaf al-Hazmi or notify the FBI when it learned that he possessed a U.S. visa and had flown to Los Angeles on January 15, 2000. 4. 
January 2001. The CIA does not inform the FBI that a source had identified Khalad, or Tafik Ben Atash, a major figure in the October 2000 bombing of the USS Cole, as having attended the meeting in Kuala Lumpur with Khalid al-Madar. 5. May 2001. A CIA official does not notify the FBI about Madar's U.S. visa, Hazmi's U.S. travel, or Khalad's having attended the Kuala Lumpur meeting, identified when he reviewed all of the relevant traffic because of the high level of threats. 6. June 2001. FBI and CIA officials do not ensure that all relevant information regarding the Kuala Lumpur meeting was shared with the coal investigators at the June 11th meeting. 7. August 2001. The FBI does not recognize the significance of the information regarding Madar and Hazmi's possible arrival in the United States, and thus does not take adequate action to share information, assign resources, and give sufficient priority to the search. 8. August 2001. FBI headquarters does not recognize the significance of the information regarding Musawi's training and beliefs, and thus does not take adequate action to share information, involve higher-level officials across agencies, obtain information regarding Musawi's ties to al-Qaeda, and give sufficient priority to determining what Musawi might be planning. 9. August 2001. The CIA does not focus on information that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is a key al-Qaeda lieutenant or connect information identifying KSM as the Muptar mentioned in other reports to the analysis that could have linked Muptar with Ramzi bin al-Sheib and Musawi. 10. August 2001. The CIA and FBI do not connect the presence of Madar, Hazmi, and Musawi to the general threat reporting about imminent attacks. Who had the job of managing the case to make sure these things were done? One answer is that everyone had the job. The CIA's Deputy Director for Operations, James Pavitt, stressed to us that the responsibility resided with all involved. Above all, he emphasized the primacy of the field. The field had the lead in managing operations. The job of headquarters, he stressed, was to support the field, and do so without delay. If the field asked for information or other support, the job of headquarters was to get it, right away. This is a traditional perspective on operations, and traditionally it has had great merit. It reminded us of the FBI's pre-9-11 emphasis on the primacy of its field offices. When asked about how this traditional structure would adapt to the challenge of managing a transnational case, one that hopped from place to place as this one did, the deputy director argued that all involved were responsible for making it work. Pavitt underscored the responsibility of the particular field location where the suspects were being tracked at any given time. On the other hand, he also said that the counter-terrorist center was supposed to manage all the moving parts, while what happened on the ground was the responsibility of managers in the field. Headquarters tended to support and facilitate, trying to make sure everyone was in the loop. From time to time a particular post would push one way, or headquarters would urge someone to do something but headquarters never really took responsibility for the successful management of this case. Hence the managers at CIA headquarters did not realize that omissions in planning had occurred, and they scarcely knew that the case had fallen apart. The director of the counter-terrorist center at the time, Kofer Black, recalled to us that this operation was one among many 
and that at the time it was considered interesting but not heavy water yet. He recalled the failure to get the word to Bangkok fast enough, but has no evident recollection of why the case then dissolved unnoticed. The next level down, the director of the Al-Qaeda unit in CIA at the time, recalled that he did not think it was his job to direct what should or should not be done. He did not pay attention when the individuals dispersed and things fell apart. There was no conscious decision to stop the operation after the trail was temporarily lost in Bangkok. He acknowledged, however, that perhaps there had been a letdown for his overworked staff after the extreme tension and long hours in the period of the Millennium Alert. The details of this case illuminate real management challenges, past and future. The U.S. government must find a way of pooling intelligence and using it to guide the planning of and assignment of responsibilities for joint operations involving organizations as disparate as the CIA, the FBI, the State Department, the military, and the agencies involved in homeland security. Institutional Management Beyond those day-to-day -day tasks of bridging the foreign domestic divide and matching intelligence with plans, the challenges include broader management issues pertaining to how the top leaders of the government set priorities and allocate resources. Once again, it is useful to illustrate the problem by examining the CIA, since before 9-11 this agency's role was so central in the government's counterterrorism efforts. On December 4, 1998, DCI Tenet issued a directive to several CIA officials and his deputy for community management, stating, We are at war. I want no resources or people spared in this effort, either inside CIA or the community. The memorandum had little overall effect on mobilizing the CIA or the intelligence community. The memo was addressed only to CIA officials and the deputy for community management, Joan Dempsey. She faxed the memo to the heads of the major intelligence agencies after removing covert action sections. Only a handful of people received it. The NSA director at the time, Lieutenant General Kenneth Minahan, believed the memo applied only to the CIA and not the NSA, because no one had informed him of any NSA shortcomings. For their part, CIA officials thought the memorandum was intended for the rest of the intelligence community, given that they were already doing all they could and believed that the rest of the community needed to pull its weight. The episode indicates some of the limitations of the DCI's authority over the direction and priorities of the intelligence community, especially its elements within the Department of Defense. The DCI has to direct agencies without controlling them. He does not receive an appropriation for their activities, and therefore does not control their purse strings. He has little insight into how they spend their resources. Congress attempted to strengthen the DCI's authority in 1996 by creating the positions of Deputy DCI for Community Management and Assistant DCI's for Collection, Analysis and Production, and Administration. But the authority of these positions is limited, and the vision of central management clearly has not been realized. The DCI did not develop a management strategy for a war against Islamist terrorism before 9-11. Such a management strategy would define the capabilities the intelligence community must acquire for such a war, from language training to collection systems to analysts. Such a management strategy would necessarily extend beyond the CTC to the components that feed its expertise and support its operations, linked transparently to counterterrorism objectives. It would then detail the proposed expenditures and organizational changes required to acquire and implement these capabilities. 
DCI Tennant and his deputy director for operations told us they did have a management strategy for a war on terrorism. It was to rebuild the CIA. They said the CIA as a whole had been badly damaged by prior budget constraints and that capabilities needed to be restored across the board. Indeed, the CTC budget had not been cut while the budgets had been slashed in many other parts of the agency. By restoring funding across the CIA, a rising tide would lift all boats. They also stressed the synergy between improvements of every part of the agency and the capabilities that the CTC or stations overseas could draw on in the war on terror. As some officials pointed out to us, there is a trade-off in this management approach. In an attempt to rebuild everything at once, the highest priority efforts might not get the maximum support that they need. Furthermore, this approach attempted to channel relatively strong outside support for combating terrorism into backing for across-the-board funding increases. Proponents of the counterterrorism agenda might respond by being less inclined to loosen the purse strings than they would have been if offered a convincing counterterrorism budget strategy. The DCI's management strategy was also focused mainly on the CIA. Lacking a management strategy for the war on terrorism or ways to see how funds were being spent across the community, DCI Tenet and his aides found it difficult to develop an overall intelligence community budget for a war on terrorism. Responsibility for domestic intelligence gathering on terrorism was vested solely in the FBI, yet during almost all of the Clinton administration, the relationship between the FBI director and the president was nearly non-existent. The FBI director would not communicate directly with the president. His key personnel shared very little information with the National Security Council and the rest of the national security community. As a consequence, one of the critical working relationships in the counterterrorism effort was broken. The Millennium Exception Before concluding our narrative, we offer a reminder and an explanation of the one period in which the government as a whole seemed to be acting in concert to deal with terrorism, the last weeks of December 1999 preceding the millennium. In the period between December 1999 and early January 2000, information about terrorism flowed widely and abundantly. The flow from the FBI was particularly remarkable because the FBI at other times shared almost no information. That from the intelligence community was also remarkable because some of it reached officials, local airport managers and local police departments, who had not seen such information before and would not see it again before 9-11, if then. And the terrorist threat, in the United States even more than abroad, engaged the frequent attention of high officials in the executive branch and leaders in both houses of Congress. Why was this so? Most obviously it was because everyone was already on edge with the millennium and possible computer programming glitches, Y2K, that might obliterate records, shut down power and communication lines, or otherwise disrupt daily life. Then, Jordanian authorities arrested 16 al-Qaeda terrorists planning a number of bombings in that country. Those in custody included two U.S. citizens. Soon after, an alert customs agent caught Ahmed Rassam bringing explosives across the Canadian border with the apparent intention of blowing up Los Angeles Airport. He was found to have Confederates on both sides of the border. These were not events whispered about in highly classified intelligence dailies or FBI interview memos. The information was in all major newspapers and highlighted in network television news. Though the Jordanian arrests only made page 13 of the New York Times, 
They were featured on every evening newscast. The arrest of Rassam was on front pages, and the original story and its follow-ups dominated television news for a week. FBI field offices around the country were swamped by calls from concerned citizens. Representatives of the Justice Department, the FAA, local police departments, and major airports had microphones in their faces whenever they showed themselves. After the Millennium Alert, the government relaxed. Counterterrorism went back to being a secret preserve for segments of the FBI, the Counterterrorist Center, and the Counterterrorism Security Group. But the experience showed that the government was capable of mobilizing itself for an alert against terrorism. While one factor was the pre-existence of widespread concern about Y2K, another, at least equally important, was simply shared information. Everyone knew not only of an abstract threat, but of at least one terrorist who had been arrested in the United States. Terrorism had a face, that of Ahmed Rassam, and Americans from Vermont to Southern California went on the watch for his like. In the summer of 2001, DCI Tenet, the Counter-Terrorist Center, and the Counter-Terrorism Security Group did their utmost to sound a loud alarm, its basis being intelligence indicating that al-Qaeda planned something big. But the millennium phenomenon was not repeated. FBI field offices apparently saw no abnormal terrorist activity, and headquarters was not shaking them up. Between May 2001 and September 11th, there was very little in newspapers or on television to heighten anyone's concern about terrorism. Front-page stories touching on the subject dealt with the wind-up of trials dealing with the East Africa Embassy bombings and Rassam. All this reportage looked backward, describing problems satisfactorily resolved. Back-page notices told of tightened security at embassies and military installations abroad, and government cautions against travel to the Arabian Peninsula. All the rest was secret. End of chapter 11.4 Recording by Leanne Howlett